how do you actually solve this? How do you actually, you know, integrate all these pieces and parts and then have a great public-private partnership, but then more specifically to do what exactly? Because right now, what or back then, it's still sort of the case today, is we realized there really are no consequences for malicious cyber actors. And that's because we punt most of the defense of the United States to corporate entities. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and I'm very excited to be speaking with Ron Banks, who's not only the CISO at Toyota Financial Services, but an academic, author, and 29-year Air Force combat veteran. He joins me today at the first of two episodes. In part one, we're covering his transition from fighter pilot to cybersecurity leader and digging into what's required for joint government-private industry cyber offensive response. A bank being robbed and a company being breached yield two different responses from law enforcement. So what does disintermediation mean? Why is it so hard to impose consequences on adversaries? And how can one president change the partnership between corporations and the government? Ron, thank you so much for being on our show today. As I often say for the uninitiated, who are you and what do you do? Hi, Steve. Hey, I'm Ron Banks. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at Toyota Financial Services here in Plano, Texas. Now, you haven't been the CISO forever. Where did you get your start? Well, I uh, grew up in uh, Tucson, Arizona, went to the University of Arizona, and right out of high, uh, college, I uh, went into the Air Force and uh, spent 29 years in the Air Force, um, most of that time flying fighters, F-15 specifically. Is that the only platform, or I'm sure there was others beyond trainer? Yeah, beyond there was a, a time in my operational career that uh, two years in Okinawa, I flew everything under my command. So in addition to flying fighters, I flew heavies, KC-135s, E3, a AWACS, and uh, rotary wing. Flew the uh, the 60s, the Blackhawks, in the combat rescue mission. So I was like a kid in a candy shop. <laughs> Fantastic. I read recently that the F-15 celebrated 40 years of service recently. I know. Can you believe that? Yeah, there's like three generations of uh, fighter pilots flying it now. That's fantastic. I want to go back to more of that, of what does it take to be a great aviator? Uh, is there any crossover in, t in terms of what we do on the cyber side? I'm sure there there's some things, but after you were a pilot, you shared with me kind of an interesting kind of transition moment of going from pilot to teacher, educator, and then moving into cyber. Tell us, kind of walk us a little through that of your time at the War College. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll back up one step further than that. One of my master's degrees is in strategy and graduates of that program are four-star general officers, personal strategists. And in one of my assignments, I was working for an Army four-star general who was responsible for the defense of the United States. And he asked me to dive into why his command doesn't work well with cyber command. You would think virtual and physical would be well integrated and synchronized. And it turns out that's not the case. And so 
that, that's uh, how I got into cyber initially. And it, it was after that six month deep dive tiger team effort that uh, he realized he needed to replace his current Navy one star admiral who was leading his communications and cyber director and asked me to go do it. And, you know, I told four star respectfully, hey, hey, boss, I'm a fighter pilot, not a cyber guy. And he said, nope, you're a leader. Go do the leadership thing. And that got me into cyber. And from that to your point, Steve, my next and last assignment was uh, after doing that for a while, was at our war college as the vice commandant of the war college, but also dual hatted as the commandant of our cyber college. And that specifically was where I was taking my strategy knowledge and teaching offensive and defensive cyber operators from all four services how to build strategy because they're really just focused on the tactical keyboard end of the business. And in that, uh, those last two years, I spent a lot of time learning as much as I taught. I think I learned a lot from them on the cyber side. And it was um, in and through that process that I really made the transition into uh, cyber and then into the corporate world following that. Of all of what you just covered, what do you miss the most? Well, obviously the the flying part, you just can't beat strapping on a fighter and, you know, being one with the aircraft and doing that with uh, anywhere from three to 15 other fighter pilots simultaneously against an outnumbered foe. That's a rush like you can't believe when you do that really, really well. Aside from flying fast, is there a, how big of a leap was it? Whether it's, I think you said you replaced the J6, you have this new sort of strategy, you're merging your kind of being given a new mission sort of on the ground, right? And then teaching cyber and, and, and that, that had to have been a big transition. Is there anything with that that you miss if you could go back and add that or reset? Or is it all just part of a, an accumulation of experiences and knowledge from that window of time in your life? I don't know that I'd change anything, Steve. My peers, you know, the, the pilots of all services tend to go fly for the airlines. And I, I got checked out and qualified to do that. But I made the decision that, you know, that was too much like just driving a bus, in my opinion, after flying fighters. And I really had the itch now to do cyber uh, because there there is a direct correlation with, you know, aviation and offensive operations with cyber operations, you know. F-15 does offense and defense, and uh, conceptually, this notion of what's it take to put together capabilities that can do offense and defense, how do you actually defend a target, how do you put the team together, how do you build a strategy for that? I found that that part was extremely similar, no matter if it's the physical domain or the virtual domain, and it was a very easy transition for me from aviator to cyber in that regard. and. Couple that with the very robust technology that is used in aviation. You, you just become a tech nerd, if you will. And then the my my deep dive into you know running the J six at Northcom. Um, you know, I I got the I got a sense of I won't say I was an expert. Um, you know, you definitely don't want to be on the keyboard programming your or configuring your firewall. But I, I really could understand the technology. I could talk to the tech nerds and we could uh, understand each other very well. So for me, it was a, a very smooth transition from one to the other. That's actually, I wasn't expecting that. 
and that's not a slight at, at you or anything else. I just expected it to be more dissimilar, but it sounds like that shift and recognition of similar mission was there and you were able to act on it. Some, you mentioned earlier that the four-star at Northern Command was like, hey, this, my folks and cyber aren't, I don't know if getting along was, was the, the statement made, but there's a disconnect there. And I don't, obviously you don't need to get into big detail, but it sounds something similar like many security teams face, even as a defender of a, on the private side, that there's friction between cybersecurity teams and capabilities and the ground they're trying to defend. Is that an accurate idea? And what did you spend your time trying to unwind and make better? Conceptually, yeah, Steve, it, it is very similar. It, it's a little bit more nuanced. What I learned in that uh, six-month Tiger Team deep dive was the virtual defense of the United States isn't solely Cyber Command's responsibility. As I started digging into it, I had to get very deep into the rest of the other governmental ent entities that do cybersecurity. And it turns out there are 200 separate organizations underneath the administrative branch of the, our government that do cyber, and they each have a different lane. And so in that regard, you know, what we struggle with in the corporate, you know, cyber's got a lane, infrastructure's got a lane, product's got a lane, these, you know, try to work within their lane. Cyber really has to cross all those. And, and uh, what I found out that Cyber Command really focuses on just really protecting the DOD for the most part. The rest of the defense of the United States fell to many other governmental organizations. And so it became this problem is much more complicated than just two four star commands working together. It was how does the rest of the interagency of the U.S. government also contribute to the defense of the United States? It became very, very complex. It certainly sounds that way. And that's beyond my. My experience, I'd never worked on the government side in that, in that capacity at all. It sounds like something that could be lifetimes to fix. Yeah. The trick is they all fall underneath the executive branch. So they all work for the president. And what was interesting to me, and I think last time we chatted, Steve, I, I talked about in my last two years in the Air Force, I also was fortunate enough to do an executive education program at Harvard where we tackled national crises. And my team focused on cyber using this, this work that I did previously for U.S. Northern Command and it allowed us to dive deeper into how do you actually solve this? How do you actually you know, integrate all these pieces and parts and then have a great public-private partnership, but then more specifically to do what exactly? Because right now, what or back then, it's still sort of the case today, is we realized there really are no consequences for malicious cyber actors. And that's because we punt most of the defense of the United States to corporate entities. How do you actually solve this? How do you actually you know, integrate all these pieces and parts and then have a great public-private partnership, but then more specifically to do what exactly? Because right now, what or back then, it's still sort of the case today, is we realized there really are no consequences for malicious cyber actors. And that's because we punt most of the defense of the United States to corporate entities. But it's, it's not really private-led. It's still being led on the governmental side, but it's involving 
local law enforcement in countries that are probably neutral to maybe leaning friendly to us, where you're going after criminal groups, let's say. Um, I think it's slowly beginning to change, but it's still being led on the government side. From your side, now that you're on the private side, are you seeing that, that issue at the scope that you're referencing it when you're back at Harvard? Do you see it changing any, or does it still, from your view, still seem a lot the same? It's a little bit of both, uh, Steve. So I think in the last five to eight years specifically, the FBI has made great strides at uh, those relationships that you're talking about, those bilateral agreements that we've got with other nations to do those investigation, the apprehension and the extradition. The problem is most criminals still understand that that whole process, and it's you know it's like a 90-day process for that to happen. And criminals, all they have to do is move to another country and the FBI has to start anew with, with the investigation and the bilateral agreement and all that. And so uh, despite the progress that the, the Bureau has had, that's still not enough to actually change behavior on the malicious cyber actors side of the equation. And quite honestly, there is a lot more that the government can do. There's a lot more that they can impose as far as consequence. There's a lot more that they can do as far as partnering with private industry to have a different type of relationship that does more than just share threat intelligence. That's where I was hopeful that you would go. You know, I, my personal background, I have hands-on technical and executive experience where a private company is hit by a nation state for purposes of information collection and espionage. And so you have uh, government slash military resources plus what I'll call contract groups uh, of theirs, multiple sort of groups with a similar problem set uh, attacking private enterprise in the U.S. And what happens by most measures is that that U.S. organization is sort of blamed and there's sort of this victim situation where you know the customers of that company are the victim, but the the company itself, despite going up against a nation state, is sort of uh, blamed, no matter what their readiness or their capability to respond might have been. And so I think I honestly think that's a really, pardon my language, but just shitty situation, and creates distrust and higher friction uh, all around. It's it's a bad situation to be in, even when you're ahead of it. So it's tough thing. And so I, I have a real big bone to pick about that situation, which I think it's slowly getting better, but largely you're still on your own. By, that's what, what many leaders would say today still. Absolutely. You're, you're right there, Steve. So I'll throw out a, a term, uh, disintermediation. We talked about it previously. A mentor of mine who's at Microsoft, Dave Oxsmith, I'll give him credit for this term. So the, and let me explain it a little bit. The analogy I'll use is from the banking side, having worked in a few banks before coming to Toyota Financial. In the physical domain, a bank has uh, security systems, has guards, um, has all sorts of controls in place to protect the bank. And if and when a bank robber enters and holds the bank up, you know, silent alarms push, cops come running to the rescue and... Uh, the bank is considered the victim and the threat, you know, the, the, the bank robber is apprehended and it's very, very effective. And law enforcement is the intermediary between the bank and the criminal. In the virtual domain, 
because we're hyper-connected now and we're all on our mobile phones and we do banking there, guess what? We're directly connected to the bank that way. Unfortunately, the threat actor is directly connected as well to the bank. And what we have now is a different world in which regulators spend a lot of time scrutinizing corporate entities on their cybersecurity programs. And when and if they're breached, they are penalized for not defending the bank. And what you have now is there's this disintermediation of the government and law enforcement between the bank and the criminal actor. Just because it's the virtual domain, I posit that that should not be the case. The bank is is still the victim. We should not be treated as the criminal in this case. That's probably too harsh a statement. I don't think the regulators consider criminals. But the fines and the oversight and the pain that goes along with the regulators, because government refuses to be the intermediary between criminal actors and the bank now, is extremely problematic. It is. And whether it's a criminal group or espionage, they really don't see it any differently. Uh, There's not even, the only thing that gets changed a little bit is you may have additional resources uh, that get pulled in. If it's a national security issue, uh, you may have a delayed timeline of reporting uh, if you don't want to sort of tip off the adversary. But net net, the regulators and the penalties and the lawsuits, the depositions, the audits, all of this, and not to mention the lens that all this gets, that gets put on this when dealing with your customers, meaning how then is it delivered If your customers see penalty in the news that you're getting penalized by regulators, they're not going to be any friendlier to you, right? It's the lens of how do we approach this? And I, it's, as you can tell, uh, my energy around this topic is pretty high. With this idea, though, uh, as somebody who's seen it, uh, who's, I know you studied this, I want to get back to, you know, dissertation, later book. What is the solution then if you were to offer uh, two or three things that we collectively need to work on, or, or, or at least concepts we need to understand, you just introduced one. What would that be if you have this, a young security leader listening and they're sort of wrestling with this, trying to, to skill up on this and, and give better advice? What are a couple of things you'd, you'd recommend that they key in on? First is the public-private partnership I mentioned earlier. Earlier, I, I think it obviously, you know, I've got relationships with the, the FBI, with DHS, CISA, with Treasury being in the financial sector. All those are still very, very important. Uh, it, it is critical that we share information back and forth, right, wrong, or indifferent. Uh, unfortunately, that information that we get from government is usually late, not actionable, too general. And I, I get my real threat intelligence from other places, even, you know, my team maintains a presence on the dark web forums. And sometimes that's the best level of threat intelligence, but you still can't stop having those relationships because in times of crisis, you're going to want those to, despite the fact that the government has been disintermediated, they can still help the FBI specifically. They have done a great job of changing their reputation over the last five to 10 years of actually being an asset for you in times of crisis. But I will say too, part of that threat intelligence sharing message that I've got is, I'm gonna direct it at the US government. As, as good as the NSA and Cyber Command and the FBI are, they still don't see into my network at Toyota or any other corporate entity. We have laws that prevent them from doing that. And so 
if the government is supposed to defend the United States, they got to know what's going on in the United States. That means, do they even understand what's going on in my networks? Do they understand the threat actors that are targeting the financial sector to the level of knowledge that Cyber Command has against threats targeting the DOD or NSA has for targets targeting political actions, actors, and intent? No, they don't. And so, you know, part, part of this public-private partnership is government has to have a different relationship where the information flows both ways and in real time. We are not there yet. Yes. And that's, and, and I think there'd be many people who, many organizations who, if they said, as an example, tactically to say, let's put sensors on your network, I don't know that that would ever fly. No, they, they can't do that. But I think that we need to do something better than a couple things. If I were going to give similar advice, number one, somebody who's listened to the show has heard me say, uh, never make an introduction in a crisis. So don't get to know your FBI friends or whoever that may be, whoever your, your local chapter or the national, uh, not chapter, but uh, field office to get my wires crossed, but get to know them at a, in a friendly way, multiple contacts before there's an issue, right? Don't, don't try to make that introduction. And the other thing is, is sharing of IOCs, as well-meaning as it is, as you mentioned, is usually a, a big waste of time, unless it's something extremely specific. You're largely, you know, loading and matching nonsense into your platforms. And it's, it's unless it's very targeted, and even then, it's probably not very valuable. So I think uh, one of the other things I think government can do better, but also we can do better, is sharing more of the, the larger attack profile and you know, sort of the techniques of the adversary and even ideas around what their larger mission set is um, and maybe even their larger plans over the next, you know, depending on who they are, their next year to 100 years, depending on where we think they're going, right? And so having how do these breaches occur? What are the likely ways that they might occur? What's it like on the inside when they do happen? And then what are tips that you can use uh, to help manage everything from you know, discovery and scoping, response, and even things like client management and legal. Um, I think government can help with that. And, and, and I do think they can, and they don't, help to intermediate with the regulators and things like that. I, I think that many of these are, you know, government entities anyway. Uh, and I think that the, the private companies that, that move America forward are, are penalized when they have these problems. So I think those are some of the things I, if somebody could wave a wand and fix, I would want more of that. Yeah, I, I agree, Steve. And I would go one step further. You know, let's go beyond law enforcement means to actually impose consequence. Um, and, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, my, my work at, at Harvard, and I wrote a book about it, was, you know, there is, there is actually a strategy here where you can impose consequence and change behavior. But we, the U.S. government, have not embraced that yet. Um, every, you know, part of my work in the, while I was in the military was evaluating, you know, current cyber strategy. And despite the, the fact that we've got a lot of documents with the word cyber strategy on it, they aren't true strategies like a strategist would build a strategy. Because at the end of the day, a strategy does have to change behavior, has to provide deterrence, has to provide some sort of consequence should deterrence fail. Um, and that's the work that uh, my team and I did in, in, while I was in the military under the Obama administration, exactly devise a new strategy. 
that, in our opinion, what we came up with was centered around a counterterrorism strategy and how we actually understand the attribution and impose consequence based off of that attribution. We actually do it very, very well in the counterterrorism uh, construct. Uh, it's not that dissimilar in cyber. Well, that, that's this is a attribution huge thing. I think many on the private side spend a lot of time on it because it's kind of sexy. And I think a lot of people probably spend too much time on it and maybe in the process also get it wrong. I probably incorrectly say that I think attribution is best done with people that have satellites and, and weapon systems, right? That often is, is if you don't have either of those or maybe one of the two, you're probably not going to get it right. But that's because we, we our, our muscle memory in that um, isn't, isn't great. But I think with government cooperation, it could be. It could be. But what would that look like, this, this concept of true attribution where, let's say, an, an independent company gets lit up, let's say it's espionage, and they have software or have um, the building of systems that our country is dependent on. At a high level, what does that look like when we're talking about the process of attribution? And then what are some common actions in this sort of new world that we might take? So I'm going to dissect what you said a little bit, Steve, and there's, there's two different answers. One is... If we're talking about nation states, they're doing probably one of two or three things. Obviously, you mentioned espionage. And you have to remember that back in the Cold War, the U.S. and Russia, then Soviet Union, grew up as the two best spying agencies in the world. And it made sense that uh, as the tools of the trade evolved, both sides evolved their, their craft equally well. And now you have a state of things where, you know, China, Iran, North Korea, and others are equally good at the tradecraft of spying. And so when you're talking about nation states, most of the time, you're not ever going to know if, you know, China, Russia are in your environment because they're that good. If they're trying to, and what we're seeing right now with uh, China is they're all in American infrastructure and the FBI is really worried because they've gone dark. They, the Chinese, have gone dark. They don't know where they are. And they believe that if they're not there now spying necessarily or stealing intellectual property, but they're, they're just posturing for conflict, that they're waiting to do the, the most uh, dramatic thing and is take down infrastructure in times of geopolitical tension. That's a completely different animal that does involve kinetic actions, that does you know, involve like-for-like like responses. I'm going to put that aside because I think most of your listeners don't actually play in that world. That, that's a very different set of classified operations. But for those of us in the corporate world, we're more on the uh, dealing with the criminal organizations. And attribution is a lot easier and quicker nowadays because most of the time, the threat actor tells you who they are because they want to get paid think ransomware. And so attribution becomes a lot simpler in that regard. You may not need to know the exact criminal behind the, the Conti gang or whoever that did it, but you, you know that it's the Conti gang. That then can start a series of actions. And with a different partnership with government, private industry could go a level deeper in attribution and with the sharing of information both ways, there could be a full understanding of the who, what, when, where, and why that then through 
means and methods, the government can do offensive things, at least to surveil first. Private entity can't do that. We have laws against going offensively into another entity's computer, but the government can in the spirit of national defense, defending critical infrastructure. And then it's about understanding really what the threat actor values and go after what they value. You can change behavior and it's not with bullets or missiles, but with other things. Obviously, you can affect their ability to uh, keep their money. You can make it even more personal and go after things that they value. And suddenly this counterterrorism strategy comes into view. There's a whole bunch of things that you can impose consequence with that may not even be in the physical domain that are very, very effective if coupled together in the right strategy against this threat. It's an interesting phrase that you've been bringing up in terms of what they value. Uh, I assume most of that is well, in this example is digital currency. How do you think, I mean, I guess one thing for the listener here, again, you, you, you nailed it. Most of them are on the private side. I mean, what is a, I don't know, I've not read your book. I'm actually looking at it on another screen here. Um, I'm going to bring it up here in a second. But is this a lobbying effort? Like how, if, if let's say a group of, of 1,000 CISOs we're in a room at a convention and we were in turn lobbying government for this type of capability and response uh, because we wanted fewer of these problems, said as plainly as I can. What do you think it would take to make that happen? I mean, I know we have the capability on once it becomes a priority for the federal government to go after it. We, I've seen it done going after assets, going after compute, going after their methods of payments and their ways to sort of cash out of these things, right? What's the leap though? How do we jump? How do we get across that wall? At the end of the day, this is simply a leadership problem. And I'll explain that because all the laws are already in place. All the capability already exists. The relationships initially are already developed. And so what this takes is the leadership of whoever's sitting in the White House to be directive over those 200 entities that do cyber in the U.S. government. And just wrap your head around that. 200 entities, separate entities, each with different titles, responsibilities, and law that they follow. What the problem they have is they're not integrated and synchronized in a fashion in the virtual domain that actually defends the United States. They spend more time on threat intelligence sharing, and that's it. Rather than to bring that collective of government entities together with the sole purpose of imposing consequence in a way that's effective, which means now the public-private partnership becomes more important to truly under... So I'll, I'll take the financial sector, and I'll take uh, we'll say money movement and the technologies and systems involved specifically for moving the trillions of dollars that move across the financial sector in the United States every single day. Think about that. Trillions of dollars a day. It is very, it would be not unplausible for a threat actor to take that down. And uh, we don't spend very much effort on the government side of really understanding all the systems, technologies, and stakeholders in those processes. 
but threat actors do. Might it be better if that public-private partnership was centered around what truly is, the, what are the crown jewels, what's it take to defeat the crown jewels, and then through offensive espionage, if you will, you know, how do you get into uh, threat actors' environments to look for who is targeting that money movement system and then in a proactive way in a relationship with public-private to actually do something about that? It simply takes the right administrative directive from the President of the United States to make that happen. Everything else already exists. No more money needs to be, you know, minted. All the, the authorities and titles are already in place. The relationships are built. The technology is there. The people are there. It is simply a will to focus and to do it differently. Ron, do you think there's a day where this happens? And I'm thinking of a future where, let's say, someone's working at your organization that reports up through you. And, you know, they wear almost a second hat. Maybe they're cleared also to give almost like a reservist's role to help with that mission. Do you think that's something we could see? And, and would that be something that you'd support from a human capital standpoint in a mission? Absolutely. I think so. I think, you know, obviously we're talking about some sort of joint task force and government hates the idea of one more joint task force. But this joint task force would have to operate at the top secret level, TSCI, and have the right private partners with the right clearances in that environment to have the right mechanism in place to do what we're talking about. And you know, one of the hurdles for corporate entities is to have the right indemnification. We want to be anonymous. We don't want to come across as partnering with the United States because many of us work in other parts of the world where if that relationship was known, it would be hard for us to do business with those countries. And so there's got to be some level of uh, well, not some. There's got to be anonymity and indemnification for us to partner in a way that that we contribute and we're part of the solutioning to make this happen. And that is not a far off stretch of the imagination. And I use and I talk about this in my book. Uh, Joint Task Force South out of Florida is run largely as the counter narco effort for drug trade that comes in through Miami. Um, that's a huge task force. There are private entities part of that. The military is the 800-pound gorilla in that, but they don't need it. It's run by other entities. And, and it's the same thing. It's just because the military, NSA, Cybercrime have the biggest guns in this fight doesn't mean they should lead this. This is a different model with different leadership that invokes this private relationship with corporate entities to do something completely different. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.